Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Yeah, I love you guys. Uh, thank you. That's a wonderful welcome. Wish my parents were here to see that. My daddy would have enjoyed it. My mom would have believed it. So, so. hey, I want to um, I want to just uh, touch on worship for a minute. Um, I just feel like you guys are such a wonderful worshiping community, and. Um, Last, last week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, with Martin Smith here. And uh, was, did Chris Sheely have something to do with Martin coming? Did I hear that? Chris is here, isn't he? Yeah. Do you have something to do with him being here? A little bit? A little bit's a lot, I bet. And, uh, but something happened that just, uh, thank you, Chris. And amazing. And, you know, that, that testimony that he had when he was 19 and when he encountered God really for the first time when the Lord touched him and he was filled with the Spirit and he felt oil on his hands. And then 30 years later, last Sunday morning, for the first time since, he felt oil in his hands. Um, and the reaction of his son when it happened, it, uh, it touched me and I felt like it was spiritually significant for us. I felt like it was a kiss for him, but a kiss for us. Because you and I are di- digging a deep well for worship because we understand it's important. So I, I've just been, it, it, it kind of sparked in me some of the promises for worship over this house. And Vanessa making a declaration, we want to see the greatest wave of worship the world has ever known. And so I'm re-declaring, like I'm re-establishing, putting that stake in the ground again. And I'm reminding people who haven't heard this story that we all, the reason we say we all can be worship leaders is I was, in our previous church, there was a season where the the worship was stuck in third gear. Have you ever been in a place like that? It, you know, I want a six-gear Ferrari to drive, but it just was stuck in third gear. Have you ever driven a car? Shift, you know. So, like, can we shift? So, and I was complaining to the Lord about it, like, what's going on? I feel like our worship's not getting through the ceiling. And I, the Holy Spirit just said, go up front and lead. And because sometimes when you see a problem, you're meant to be part of the solution. And, and I'm like, then we start whining with God. Well, that's not me. I'm a quiet guy. No one else is up there. I'm going to look. I don't want to draw attention to myself. And, he, you know, he doesn't usually engage in your excuses. It's go up front and lead worship. And so for weeks, I was standing all alone, leading worship. And our last Sunday there, before we were sent here, months later, things began to shift. And it wasn't just that act of obedience, but that was part of it. 
and the stage, the, it was full, there were kids playing, there were flags flying. We were in sixth gear, and the Holy Spirit whispered, I told you you were a worship leader. And uh, that's part of every one of our inheritance. There are 100 people behind you when you worship. And I, on some mornings when I come and I don't feel like worshiping, I remind if I can step in, if I can increase my intensity, if I can set my affection upon the king, 100 people will be behind me and do the same thing. You are a worship leader. We have dreams that at the first strum of the first song, we will all enter in. Now, we're a long way from that because at the first strum of the first song, 75% of you aren't even here. So we got a little work to do on that one. I used to be perennially tardy, habitually tardy, and somebody said one sentence, and I shifted forever. He said that uh, habitual tardiness is a form of pride. You think your time's worth more than someone else's. I didn't like the way that felt. And so um, let's change that culture today. Don't make your leaders, like, work at it. Let's just shift that today and get on Lombardi time. If you're not 10 minutes early, you're late. So let's change that culture. And there's a, another promise in our worship, and that is that your friends will come in and feel the tangible presence of the king. And people you invite will get healed in the worship. So we collectively get behind these promises and dreams that we will experience the greatest wave of worship the world's ever seen. That sounds crazy, big, bold, and impossible, but beautiful. Bill Johnson, 25, 30 years ago, in a little town called Weaverville, a church of 200, said, you're going to change the world from this place. It sounded crazy. It sounded impossible. It sounded beautiful. And now we see it's kind of happened. They've touched the world, that group of people. Why not here? It's no more crazy than what they were declaring. They had the courage as a group of people to believe it. So we are going to create a beautiful wave of worship. It's here. The ground is here. And let's take it to the next level. Amen? Amen. I believe that oil on the hand was a kiss for him and for us. That the oil flows here. There's something rich here. The Holy Spirit convicted me last Sunday because I was standing here and I thought, oh my goodness, we've got the greatest songwriter of an entire generation and the church feels empty at the first drum. And the Holy Spirit had convicted me, hey, I can pour oil in his hands and make it a wonderful experience. I don't care who's here. 
Amen. I want to tell you that um, Lindy and I got to represent you at Benny Johnson's memorial service. We felt like we were on assignment on your behalf. And it was a beautiful experience. We, uh, we heard their three children share their hearts. And uh, Eric's talk was so amazing. And we heard her brother share how for five days after her death, he was hearing sounds from heaven, notes that were not earthly, from instruments that don't come from earth. For five days, he was hearing songs from heaven. And I was so humbled by our leaders. You know, they're very private people. And they, they chose to process publicly in front of the world a really tough situation. And I felt like it was a gift to us. And uh, I felt the next morning, I was laying in bed, I felt the residual presence of that service, like the Holy Spirit on me, just a wave flowing. And uh, between Martin and Bill, I, I just have left like, we have such... The generals in our movement are such humble people. I don't see it so much in politics or business, but in our movement, in the kingdom, our leaders are humble, gracious men and women. And uh, I'm really grateful for that and our people there. So, amen. So we're going to, um, let's turn if you will, to my favorite chapter in the Bible, Isaiah 61, and uh, read in the NESB. And we're, we're just going to stay on the first couple of verses today, Isaiah 61, verse 1. And um, interesting, just to set the setup of this is so interesting. Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ. And Isaiah wrote this, and Jesus reopened the scroll of Isaiah when he preached in his hometown of Nazareth. So the setting of when this happened was uh, after the 40 days in the wilderness, really launching his ministry. He had been to Capernaum. Miracles were starting to happen. People were hearing crazy stuff happening, and he goes to his hometown and in his hometown, they're wanting to see some miracles. They want to see the magic show. They're asking questions like, aren't you Joseph's son? Like they grew up with this guy. And can you imagine if the son of God was living in Tyrone and he was preaching here one day? It would be a little tough to take. Like, really? But... But God wasn't happy with their response. Jesus was not happy with their response. But he is basically introducing, inaugurating, opening up his ministry in his hometown, reading the book of Isaiah, a prophetic utterance 700 years declaring and speaking about him. 
and he opens up the book, opens the scroll before them. And he, in Luke chapter 4, he just reads the first two verses. Couldn't have been a very long sermon. And so we're not going to have a two-minute sermon today, but in Isaiah 61, he said, The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the humble, to set me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives, freedom to prisoners. And that's verse 1. And if you look at that, in diff- I, I'm always touched every time I see that. He comes for the poor. He comes for the brokenhearted. The message says he comes for the burdened and battered. The NSB says he comes for the captives. The Passion Translation says he's coming for the broken. He's bringing them release. He's bringing the poor hope. He's bringing healing to the brokenhearted. He's bringing release to the captives. He's coming for the blind. He's bringing new eyes, a new way of looking, a new sight. And he's coming for prisoners to pardon them, to free them, to declare a favorable year. For the poor, he brings hope. For the captives, he brings release. For the ones that need healing, a new way of seeing, new eyes. And for the oppressed, he brings broken chains. And I, I am touched every time I hear this and read this because you think of the advent of God becoming flesh and coming to the world, opening the scroll, really his first words of ministry. Words mean things. First words mean a lot. First words from the Son of God mean a real lot. And he says, I'm coming for the poor, the broken, the blind, the oppressed. He's taken on humanity. And his first words, I see your frailty. I see your humanness. I see where you're hurting. And he could have come with any declaration. He could have come anyhow. But he casts this great net that includes every single one of us. Every one of us at some level, poor, broken, oppressed, chains on us, needing of healing. He came for all humanity. And you can stop there. What a... God is good. God is loving. God is great. And he came with that invitation. And in verse 2, why did he come? In verse 2, he's telling us, who, one, he's, who, is, who am I coming for? And two, what am I about? If you study business or any churches, everybody's about having a vision statement, a mission statement. I'm a student of how people communicate. No waste in time here. What's he coming for? To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. A favorable year 
and a day of vengeance. One version says recompense. He says, I'm declaring a favorable season. A new, one version says, a new season of grace. I'm proclaiming a new season of grace and a favorable year of the Lord. We're going to do business differently. It's going to look different. And I'm also declaring a day of vengeance against my enemies. So what does that mean? Let's look at, uh, if you would, turn to Colossians 2.15. There's lots of movie streaming in the Bible that I'd love to see in heaven. I don't think you're going to have to go to an ancient blockbuster and get a DVD. I don't think you're going to have a device in heaven. I think you just get to think, like, wonder what that was like, and bam, I think I'll be there. I'll feel it. I'll smell it. I'll, I'll experience it, and... 3D. I'll experience like I was there in the moment. You'll get to experience those things you wondered about. And I wonder what happened between the cross and the resurrection when he descended down. Like, what was going on? And you get a little glimpse here in Colossians 2.15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. In fact, let's go to 14. Having canceled their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Let's stop there. On the cross, he canceled the set of decrees that were set over you. On the cross, they've been broken and canceled. Like your family line, those sins that come up, those things that are in your, he- in your family line, you don't like. That sickness, that disease, that divorce, that poverty, you name it. I've canceled those set of decrees that were on you by the power of the cross, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Isn't that beautiful? Why don't we, receive, why don't we just receive that for ourselves right now? And redeclare the faith of that truth. That those set of decrees that were set over you, those things spoken over you, those words that were untrue spoken over you, they've been set on the cross, nailed to the cross. And when he had had, in past tense, disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. When I read that verse, a public display, he's made a public display. I, th- I just see God, Christ, not the humble servant, but the risen king riding on a white horse with eyes of fire, with that sword and the spirit, with things written on, like that warrior king with face paint on, going through heaven, trash-talking, and they are scared to death. He's coming in, King of kings, Lord of lords, the great and mighty one, and he's making a spectacle of them 
Because, it, you know, this wasn't, I think there, there was a song in the 80s that made it sound like God was in this great little boxing match and in the 12th round, God finally killed the devil. Like, it was a great song and terrible theology. <laughs> like, let's just remind ourselves the devil was a created being, created by God, fallen angel at the level of Michael and those three he was, he was a pawn in the hand of God. There was never a close match. It was, it was he'll do what, with, what he wants to do with him when he wants to do it. And he went and made a spectacle of them. One of the versions says they're running through naked. Uh, in fact, I think it's the message is so beautiful in this verse. Um, it's just, it's so easy now with Bible apps, you can just touch. What was the message say? What's the, what's the NESP? What's the New King James? It's, I mean, it's, it's so simple, but it makes it sometimes come to life. And the message doesn't na uh, put a number by every verse, which is really annoying. <laughs> and he stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. I like that one. That's what he did. When he says, I'm bringing vengeance, when he says, I'm bringing a favorable year of the Lord and vengeance to my enemies, and all the enemy that has tried to pull you down for all time. Past tense, not in the future. We're learning to live in that reality. In, a, in Luke 4 is a, just a, another beautiful story touching on God touching the humanity of man. In Luke chapter 4, this is the very um, well-known passage about the woman caught in adultery. And you've all heard multiple sermons on that. <clears throat> and so, verse 14 Actually, that's in John. Does anyone know where that is? What chapter? Thank you. <clears throat> Move to John. <clears throat> and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple area, and the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began teaching them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery, and after placing her in the center of the courtyard, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Now they were saying this to test him so they, they might have grounds of accusing him. And so it's a gotcha question, right? The law says we have to stone. Now if, they care, if those Pharisees had cared about justice, they would obey the law and brought the man. Also, so they weren't obeying the law totally. They were using this woman and her dignity to try to trap 
the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who knew from beginning and the end, who was there before the foundation of the earth. But in our culture, almost every political question is a gotcha question. Think about the last time you ever heard somebody ask a question who was really wanting to know an answer and someone who gave an answer really trying to bring clarity like it doesn't exist right now. The political spirit, the religious spirit has a lot of gotcha questions. And so, and so that Jesus stopped down with his finger and wrote on the ground and they persisted in asking him, he straightened up, and he said, let he is without sin among them. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And there's been a million sermons on what he wrote on the ground. All kinds of guesses, all kinds of great ideas. Nobody really knows. And the best explanation I've ever heard, the one I would fall into, is in Jeremiah it was prophesied that he would write his enemies in the dirt. And so in a sense, he was fulfilling that prophecy with writing in the dirt. Now, what did he write? That'll be a good, good DVD to rent when we get to heaven. You'll just be able to think it, and you'll be right there. Maybe he was writing Jeremiah and the verse. Maybe... By a word of knowledge, he was writing their names of the accusers as he was writing about the godless in the dirt. But in any event, they persisted. He straightened up and he said, he is without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard this, they began leaving one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. Why do you think the older ones left first? It's a message on another day. You'll have to come back. <laughs> and he was left alone. We'll, we'll share that message in the older 50 fire. <laughs> and he was left alone. And the woman where she was in the center of the courtyard and straightening up, Jesus said to the woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And in their culture, you had to have two witnesses to bring an accusation. The accusers were gone. And she said, no one, there's, there's no accusers. And he said, I do not condemn you either. Interesting side note to me is that, you know, he, Jesus wasn't one of the witnesses, so he couldn't have been a witness. But the declaration, let he who is without you, without sin, cast the first stone. Jesus actually was the one without sin. By that decree, he could have cast a stone. But he says, I don't condemn you either. And go now and do not sin any longer. We're seeing in these two verses the humanity where God knows our humanity. Jesus somehow in the midst of a gotcha question brought the, sea, the favor of the Lord. The Isaiah 61 too, the favor of God and yet he's still bringing vengeance 
to his enemies. And in this case, he held the standard, hey, go and sin no more, while being full of love and full of truth. And we're living in a shaking world of morality where we need God's wisdom. To how do we live in a world where we don't lower truth, but we bring God's grace, mercy, and love? Like this is like a maze walking on pins. And we can't do it in our own strength, but we can be a light. We can be an answer. We can come with the heart of Jesus that's full of compassion to a hurting world because he certainly was. Amen? We're living in a day where, where the Bible says um, that evil is good and sometimes people call good evil. Amen? So how does a Christian live in that world where foundations are being shaken? How do we come as Jesus did to the woman caught, like he did with the woman caught in adultery? How do we do that? And how do we come with courage? How do we come with strength? We're living in an unusual, unusual day. Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, uh, it's a day where they called evil good and good evil. We're living in a day where questions like, what is a woman, stumps people, our leaders. We're living in a day where minors are being encouraged to explore their gender. It's evil. When crazy marries evil, you get that kind of stuff. And so we, we need to learn how to walk carefully and wisely. And we can do that together in community. I want to speak to the men as protectors for a moment. Um, I, we are, uh, we are, I believe there are different roles that Lindy and I have in building our family. She would bring glue and joy and optimism, a prophetic peace. She brought life. She brought harmony. She brought clean. Tidy. And uh, we're uh, all about empowering women in our family. My mama was strong, as you can imagine. Her mama was as strong a woman as you can imagine. Lindy is sweet as apple pie. She's strong, as you can imagine. <laughs> Lauren is a strong woman. I'm not intimidated by strong women. As much as that might not always appear to be the case. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm all about women. Jesus, Jesus said, 
That could be misquoted. <laughs> of course, never had a sermon that didn't have a misquote. So, I am all about women. So, and we're pioneering some things with that in this church. You know, not many churches, uh, maybe none. Our first and third full-time hire was a woman. We have a young lady as a pastor. She, uh, you know, she went into the world of, of men in engineering school and kicked all their butts. And she's coming into another world of, that's mainly male-dominated, pastoring church in the South. Love it. But I do feel like we have different roles, men and women. So in, my, in our family, I'm bringing leadership. I'm bringing provider, breeding, breeding protector. I'm breeding culture, identity. That's men. Those are, you know, there's different places where we're strong together. As you create a culture in your family in your business, in your church, how does culture get created? And so, men, one of our roles is protector. We protect. And that takes courage. And in, in the midst of shaking and morality, there's an arena where you become and we stand as protectors. And there is so much courage in our line in the Bible. There's so many courageous leaders. We got, we got born in, grafted in to the seed of Abraham. And you get a spiritual inheritance with these heroes in the Bible. Think about the hero heroism of Noah as he began building this ark the ridicule, the craziness that people must have said about him. Think about Abraham when he left his family and he left them for another day. Think about Abraham when he heard God's voice and he offered up that son Isaac. What kind of courage did that take? Moses, when he left and, and, um, and he left the Pharaoh's house, the opulence and all that to be with his people. Think about David. Can you imagine that time when David put his sword on his back and he was climbing that cliff? Jonathan out his, behind him with his, with the, um, what do they call that thing? <laughs> Armor and a shield. He's climbing, and they're giants at the top of that plateau, and he's climbing. They're throwing rocks down. The, he was a superhero. You read it. Marvel has no superhero like David. He's climbing there, and he gets up, and he slays hundreds of people. They were superheroes. They were full of courage. Think about Ruth. I'm going to walk in on the king. If he's in a bad mood, I'm dead. Think about Stephen. He declares the gospel and the truth, of the, and he does a summary of the Bible with stones coming at him. These are our fathers and our mothers. 
Think about the Apostle Paul. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. One time he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. Like, don't get on the boat. <laughs> 24 hours in open sea, a full day and a full night. He put up with rivers. He put up with robbers. He put up with foreigners. He put up with his own people. He put up with nights without enough clothing in the cold. Heroes. That's who we are, men and women. I think about my own, my own Hale lineage. They're heroes. I have a great, 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 great grandfather died at Vicksburg. I have a great grandfather, Tom Hale, who a neighbor was abusing his wife. And he went over and said, this ain't happening. And there was a fight to the death. A fight for justice, a fight for women. And the judge acquitted Tom and said, no problem, sir, go free. I have a grandfather who fought in Popsky's private army behind enemy lines in World War II Special forces stepped on a mine, died for our freedom. I have a father who served in the military two wars, and Colonel Hale being transported in a Huey chopper, a bullet comes up right in front of his nose. I have a natural lineage of courage. I have a spiritual lineage of courage, and so do you. Some things have to be worth dying for. If you don't have something worth dying for, I wonder if you have anything worth living for. Men, you're a protector. And when the world starts shaking <laughs> and uh, they start wanting to tell your children or your grandchildren that we're going to do some gender stuff, that's where the line is stops. Like, no. Absolutely no. That is not happening. I don't care. I don't care, gentlemen. I don't care, men and women. I will empty my bank account. I will sell everything to stop that ha happening. I will live in a trailer. Lindy and I will live in the back of a pickup truck with a tent. This is not happening. We will take a bullet. This is not happening. Like, no way. So there's a little, uh, it's a little lesson in, like, we can't declare problems without solutions. And I think the church has, Big C Church has done that. So we've got, we've got to always have a solution when we declare a problem. And this is a great, this is a great lesson. If, you ever want, if you're an employee and you want to be an employer, this is one of the keys to get to change that. If you see a problem in your family, your business, your church, here's a great way. I've been on both ends. I've given it right. I've given advice wrong. 
I've received it right, I've received it wrong. Here's a little lesson. You see a problem at work or at church, and you're approaching a leader, it really helps if you go affirming, hey, these things are working great, I'm on your team, I'm not going anywhere. Affirm that you're with them. Hey, here's a problem. Hey, here's a solution. Hey, I'll be part of the solution. And hey, I'm with you. <laughs> the hero sandwich. I'm still with you. <laughs> this is a great technique of being part of the solution. So in a shaking world, it's a, you know, we can all scream, oh, I'm against abortion. I'm against what's that's happening in the school. But let's be part of the solution. And let's be, let's come. Let's come with the heart of Isaiah 61 of Jesus. Hey, we've all been poor. We've all been broken. We've all been captives. We've all made mistakes. I mean, really, 90% of America could have had an unwanted pregnancy. Right? We come with compassion. We come with a heart. We can be, and Lenny and I were talking about this briefly. We said, if there's a young lady in our midst, in our church, or friends of a friend, or in our environment, there's no way we can't find the resources to help her through her pregnancy. There's no way we can't. I'm not, there's no way that we can't find her home, shelter, medical care. There's no way we can't find amazing family to take that baby if she needs that. There's no way in this room, there's no way we can't take one, two, three, four. And Lenny and I are committed to that. You bring it, we'll make it happen. And if I need your help, you'll say yes. I know you will. Hey, I need a little help. I got it. I got you. I got you back. We come with the heart of a lion, but the tenderness of the lamb. We come like Jesus came with that woman caught in adultery. We come like Isaiah when he opened up his ministry. And we come as protectors. And if, if it gets worse where the gender thing happens, we will find schools. We will become the homeschool champion. We will do it. We will empty our pocketbooks. We are not going to let that happen. Amen? We're the, we're the solution. We are the solution. So I love our church and I love our people. And we're going to be part of the greatest wave of worship the world's ever known. Amen. Amen. There are prophecies that uh, we just keep clinging to. A prophet who everything he's prophesied to me has come true, Michael Maiden, said he saw in the spirit 
a fire 200 feet high in that field, a spiritual fire, and people lined up from the interstate. What if you heard that for the first time right now? You said, boy, that seems like a stretch, Pastor. It does seem like a stretch. But what if you had the faith to believe it? And what if six months from now, six years from now, you're here and you see it happen? And you held on. You were part of the solution. You were the one that never let go. He's waiting for unreasonable faith. He's waiting for a people that say, I put the presence of my king first. I'm an extravagant worshiper. I'll hear his voice, and I'll run to obey when I hear it. Those are the kind of people. We are, we're an Isaiah 61 church. I declare a year of freedom. I blow a trumpet of jubilee. I'm the chain breaker. I'm the freedom maker. I'm the healer. And I'm going to turn these broken ones into oaks of righteousness. And they will restore cities. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.